teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do ask that you would move in us, that you would use us, Lord, to impact uh, your world. We want to pray for those going to the Philippines here in a few weeks, that uh, God, you would uh, prepare the way for us, that you would uh, watch over our health and safety, and that more importantly, Lord, you would use us to encourage the saints there and to, uh, Lord, spread the message of your truth, your gospel, to those who need to hear it. Pray, Lord, too, for the many missionaries, God, that uh, we support uh, here, that you would be encouraging them. I know some of them, it can be very lonely and isolated as they're far away. I pray, God, you would encourage them and, and be using them. I pray, too, for camp, Lord, coming up this weekend. God, may you... Uh, work within the the hearts of the kids and lord even now that some that aren't going lord may you stir in them a desire to go and and make a way for them and give them a means to be able to attend and lord that you would be with tim as he speaks and lord that he would be speaking your word and that you would transform lives encourage the youth father too i also pray for just your word now as as we hear it that you would be speaking to us that your spirit would um, help us understand and apply Pray too, Lord, just for the sound that God, you would be over that and, and not allow that to be a distraction. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, indeed, uh, it is a new year. In fact, we're almost a week into the new year, which means that according to recent statistics, one in four of us has already broken our New Year's resolution. In fact, I broke mine last night at dessert. But don't worry, you have another fifty-one weeks to try to, to gear up and do another one next year. Unless, of course, your resolution was to start coming to church. Don't break that one. I want to encourage you to, to be here. But our, our calendars have indeed rolled over to 2013. And, and yes, it often is a time where we may tend to reflect back on the past year or may think about the coming year and plan and consider uh, what we want to do ahead. And preachers and teachers, they'll often take opportunity on the first uh, Sunday of the new year to uh, to talk about maybe reflecting on the state of the church or to give a message relevant, uh, relating to relevant cultural trends or maybe talking about certain dangers that might exist or threaten the, the church or maybe bring up a goal or a vision. I thought about doing that. I thought about having a special me- message dedicated to a specific topic that would be important to us. And then I remembered where we were in Ephesians 5, talking about husbands. And just thought about, too, that this, that really is a, a perfect focus for us to consider in the coming year. In verses 25 and 30, Paul directs instruction to husbands. And I know if there's one area in our church, in our body, that we need to see continued growth in, it is in the men here. It is in the men. For the family and the church will only be as strong as the men in it. Now, that's, of course, not to say at all that that women are insignificant or unimportant or inconsequential to the health of the family or the church. No, they they play a vital role as well. But God has positioned men and designed for men to be in uh, roles of leadership within those institutions. And so today we're going to direct our attention to Ephesians 5 and God's expectation of men, especially husbands. And so I'd ask if you would please stand as we read from the Word of God, starting in verse 18 of Ephesians 5. 
Now, some, some of you may wonder, why do they keep having to stand up in the service? All right? Getting tired. Um, no, it is not our resolution this year to, for exercise regimen at all, but we just feel like uh, it's important that we demonstrate physically and visibly a, a, an honor to the Lord as, as His Word is read, as the words that He's spoken to us, and also as we sing to Him. Uh, there's no command to do so, but it's just, a, I think, a way, we think a way as elders, an opportunity to show God uh, respect, and, and so that's why we do it. So please uh, remain standing. If you can't stand or if it's hard, it's okay. If you need to sit down, uh, no worries on that. No one's going to look at you um, with any evil eye or anything, but if you can stand, please do that as I read, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Thank you. You may be seated. So as Paul uh, approaches... This text on marriage, a text we've been looking at for several weeks, we need to to remind ourselves of the context, that it comes within the context of being filled by the Spirit. And in verse 21, we see that uh, one of the outcomes or results or consequences of being filled by the Spirit is that we are subject to one another, that there's a mutual submission, a, a mutual humility towards one another, and as we serve one another in a desire to honor Christ. In verses 22 and on, They show that that humble service will show itself in the home. It'll show itself through a wife's respectful submission and will show itself through a husband's sacrificial love. And remember from our earlier study in Genesis that that those roles that Paul articulates here, they didn't start with Paul. They weren't something that began in the culture of his day. They weren't something that were part of the Mosaic law that started there or that even after the fall itself. But the instruction given to men and to women here began within creation. God designed it within the fiber of a man and a woman and how he created them. He made Adam to lead and Eve to help. And again, we need to remember these roles do not reflect value. Both are made in the image of God, both male and female. Both have the same worth and significance Both are equal in Christ, but each has a different role. And so Paul, he highlights these differences. He focuses on the the key responsibility, the key role that wives and husbands have in marriage. A Christ-exalting, fulfilling, healthy marriage can be had. It actually is achievable, folks, if by the power of God's Spirit we pursue what God has designed for each of us 
to be and to do within marriage. And Paul describes here that God made marriage to be a reflection, right? What is it a reflection of? Christ's relationship with his church, which here he calls his bride. And to mirror that union between Jesus and his people. Paul describes here that you can have a satisfying marriage, but there's one hindrance, one big problem that needs to be dealt with first. And we've talked about that. What is the biggest problem that attacks and destroys and undermines marriage? Sin, right? Sin. The biggest problem in my marriage is not my wife, Tina. It's me. The biggest problem in your marriage is not your spouse. Who is it? It's you. That's right. When the husband doesn't lead in a loving way or doesn't lead at all, then his wife will struggle to submit or be respectful. When a wife is not being submissive or respectful to her husband, then a husband will struggle to lead in his family. And that forms this cycle, a vicious cycle. And that cycle can only be broken if we resolve to, one, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to give preference to my spouse. I'm going to make Christ glory and honor my chief aim because I want to emulate the bond between Jesus and his bride. I want to show the world a picture of what that looks like. And so here in verses 22 to 24, Paul describes, he begins to describe how that bond between Jesus and the church is, also, is shown through a wife's submission to her husband, her own husband. And if Paul had stopped at verse 24, we would have a pretty skewed understanding of marriage, wouldn't we? In fact, a lot of guys seem to do that. They stop at verse 24. Yes, honey, look what it says. I'm the leader. You must follow my instruction and my leadership. (laughs) Guys, stop there. And don't move beyond that. But Paul didn't stop in verse 24, did he? No, in verse 25 and on, he gives clear instruction of what that husband's leadership is supposed to look like. He says, husbands, love your wives. That is how you lead. And in verses 25 to 30, Paul then gives three qualities of the kind of love that God wants husbands to give. It's first a love that shepherds sacrificially. Secondly, it is a love that seeks sanctification. And thirdly, it is a love that sustains sweetly. Look again at verse 25, where we see husbands are to love by shepherding sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And before we begin to talk about that, before the uh, magnifying glass gets turned upon the men, specifically the husbands in this church, I need to remind you of something. Remember, some of the key themes here in Ephesians have been what? Grace talked a lot about grace, talked a lot about God's work in us, who we are in Christ, and he's talked a lot about the body. And our tendency can be when we come to messages or sermons or teachings to a specific group, such as wives or husbands or children or parents or employees or, or whatever, men, women, we can tend to focus attention all glad. Okay, he's going to talk to them this morning. I can just kind of sit in and listen. But I want to remind you, Paul has made great effort to emphasize the fact we're all interconnected. We are all in this together. We are all part of the same building. And every one of you plays a role in obeying this passage. No, you may not be a husband. You may be single. You may not be a man. But this doesn't mean that you aren't connected to applying this text. That you need to help the men here who are husbands. You need to help the ladies here 
who are wives. You need to be involved in prayer and in relationships so that you're coming alongside as a church to encourage and disciple the men because we as a body disciple one another. We as a body help one another to obey the teachings of Christ. So I just want to remind you of that, that we are interconnected. And so, yes, the husbands are going to get more specific attention this morning, but we're all responsible to help husbands to obey the Lord, right? So please make sure to remember that. This verse does introduce the first command in verse 25 to husbands, and that is to love your wives. And really, it's the only command that he gives to husbands in this whole section. In fact, all he talks about here in regards to husbands is love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 28, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. In verse 33, he summarizes it all when he says, let each love his own wife as himself. Guys, we can't miss this. This passage here is the longest instruction given specifically to husbands in the New Testament. And in this passage... There's no command to lead, only to love. Did you catch that? He never commands men to lead. He commands several times to love. Yes, he does describe in verse 24 that God has designed and declared men to be the leaders in the home. It matters to God that you lead, but more importantly, it matters to him how you lead. That authority that God has given you is not the goal. It's not an end in and of itself. As verse 23 says, you and I are to lead as Christ led. And brothers and sisters, what was the manner of Jesus's? What is the manner of Jesus's leadership? In love, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. In fact, his leadership could really be summarized as sacrificial shepherding. He gave himself up for her. In fact, I want you to turn back to Matthew 20. It's the passage that Jim read earlier in this service. Yes, we did this by design. We planned it all out. But there's a key principle, an important point that Jesus makes in that passage. Because if if you were to ask Jesus the question, Jesus, what does it mean to lead? What do you think he would say? Was Jesus all about, you know, you need to exert your authority. You need to demonstrate that you are the one in charge. You need to impose your rule so that nobody gets out of line. Is that the response Jesus would give? Well, that seems to be how the disciples saw it. We can see that in this passage. As they're, they're making their way up to Jerusalem. It's just before the last week of Jesus' life. And, and Jesus pulled them aside and described to them his role of a servant as he would be giving up his life in crucifixion, and then would be raised again from the dead in three days. But the disciples, as Jim mentioned earlier, they, they didn't get it. They were expecting Jesus as the Messiah. They were convinced of that. They were expecting him to come and establish God's kingdom. And they wanted a prominent position within that kingdom. If you look at verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing and making requests of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. 
Let's stop there a minute. Here we see James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. They they want to have authority in Jesus' kingdom. And so, like any good leader, they let their mom ask Jesus for them. In fact, uh, in Mark, though, he doesn't mention mom. But here, Matthew, he's straightforward. He wants to lay everything out there. And he says, okay, so mom goes up and asks Jesus. Jesus is gracious in his reply. And he says, he's talking then to, the, to James and John. And he tells them, you don't understand the sacrifice involved in being a leader. But see, these guys... That's what they wanted. And the other disciples got angry with them. It says they became indignant with them. Not because they were thinking, oh, those guys are being so presumptuous to ask Jesus such a question. They were angry because they wanted the same thing. Jesus points that out as he says in verse 25. See, they had this idea. I want to be in charge. I want to rule over others. That's a place of where I'm going to get attention and people care for me and serve me and answer to me. I like that. But Jesus said this, verse 25. He called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus define greatness here? How did he describe the chief quality of a leader? What did he say was most important? Man, if you want to be in a position of leadership, this is what you need to do. What was the answer? That he be a servant. That he be a servant. A leader humbly works for the good of others. See, the world has that flipped around. People do not exist for the benefit of the leader. The leader exists for the benefit of the people. Leaders are to have, first and foremost, the mindset of a what? A servant. So, men, let me ask you this question. How do you view your role in the home? As a king or a shepherd? Both are in positions of authority. Both have a responsibility to provide for those in their care. But both do it or go about it in very different ways. A king demands. A shepherd serves. A king's concern is himself. A shepherd's is his sheep. A king asserts his authority. A shepherd influences by trust. See, godly leadership does not dictate, enforce, demand, impose. It is not abusive. It is not tyrannical. It is not harsh or authoritarian. Jesus said, hey, hey, that's how the world does it. The Gentiles lord it over one another. That's the way the world thinks. But brothers, not so among you. Peter even tells elders in 1 Peter 5, they're not to lord their authority over those in the church, but rather they are not to use their position either for personal gain, but they are to be examples. And guys, we need that mentality in our families. We have to have that mindset in our homes. Our families do not exist for our good. They are not placed there to cater to our needs and our wants. It's really the other way around. We are given to our families in order to care for their needs, to work for their good, to serve them. But if I do that, my wife's not going to respect me. If I do that, she won't be submissive if I'm one serving all the time. Is that true, ladies? I saw lots of shaking heads. No, it isn't. Revelation 5, 5 and 6 
talk about Jesus and describe him as the Lamb of God and at the same time, the Lion of Judah. He was both a servant and a leader. In fact, Jesus was and still is the ultimate servant, is he not? And I don't think any of us would ever question his authority over us. His humble service doesn't undermine his leadership. Rather, it really engenders him to us. That our master would get on his knees and that he would wash the feet of the dirty, the dirty disciples' feet. That our king would be concerned for our needs. That our Lord would make himself available to hear and answer and respond to our requests. That our creator would become his creation in order to save us. These don't make us see Jesus as less of a leader, do they? No, they they motivate us to want to follow him more, to to want to do it like that song was saying, I want to follow you. Why? Because, Lord, your humility in serving me and doing these things, that you're God, I had to be worshiping you, and yet you humble yourself and you have submitted yourself to die for my sins and still to intercede for me. Guys, if your leadership looks like Jesus's, your wife and your children will be more inclined to follow you. One pastor said, Servanthood doesn't nullify leadership, it defines it. And don't think as some men do that, well, being a servant, that, that's more a role of, that means I can be passive or I don't need to take the initiative to lead my homes. I just need to make sure I'm serving. But you see, it's, it's not just the harsh, authoritarian husband who isn't loving his wife. It's also the one who's unwilling to lead. It's also the one who passes on decisions or just lets things happen or doesn't plan or communicate or take responsibility. Men, absent leadership is just as unloving as callous leadership. We are to lead and we are to lead in love. Christ gave us the example to follow, didn't he? That's what he told his disciples in Matthew 20 when he said, I, the Son of Man, the the Messiah, the King of all, even I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve, even to the point of giving my very life. And that's what Paul speaks to in Ephesians 5 when he says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That brings to mind what what Jesus said in John 10 about himself when he described himself there, if you remember, as the good shepherd. Remember, he said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. If we look at Jesus's example And the words that he spoke there, if we consider Psalm 23, which describes the the Lord is my shepherd. You guys have heard of that passage, right? Those two texts, God gives us the picture of what a shepherd looks like through his own example. A shepherd is one who loves and protects, who cares and provides for. A shepherd is one who pursues a close relationship with those he leads. He isn't a, a distant authority, but one intimately involved with the activities and lives of those he is over. A shepherd is involved and diligently involved in his role. You see, a shepherd is more than somebody who gives directions, right? It's more than somebody who is in charge. That's not the point. Shepherd is one who's concerned for the welfare of those in his care. And he gives of himself sacrificially. One man said, you can sacrifice and not love, 
But you cannot love and not sacrifice. Husbands are display a love that shepherds sacrificially. And secondly, husbands are also to display a love that seeks sanctification. Look again in Ephesians 5 and verse 26. Paul says there, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here, three separate times, Paul repeats the Greek conjunction hena, that means uh, so that, or in order that, or that. It's a, it's a purpose or result statement. And here he gives three purpose clauses for why Jesus gave himself up for us. Verse 26, to sanctify. Verse 27, so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church. So that she would be holy, blameless. That word sanctify that he uses here, we've seen it before. We may have seen it in a different form though. It's the same root word in Greek as saint or holy ones or holiness or to be holy. Paul addresses believers in 1 Corinthians 1-2 as those who've been sanctified in Christ, Jesus, saints by calling. Or if you remember all the way back at the beginning of Ephesians, how did he address the Ephesians? As saints, as holy ones, as sanctified ones, those set apart to God and for God. And here in Ephesians 5, what he's referring to is there's two aspects to sanctification. One is that, that ongoing process of growth and holiness The other, which is the one Paul's referring to here, is that initial event of being set apart, of being saved, of being converted. That time when God opens your eyes to the fact and you realize that I indeed am a sinner before God in need of a Savior. That I cannot save myself. That that I need to repent, to turn from my sins and place my trust in Him. This point that he's talking about of being sanctified is that time when the Holy Spirit transforms the heart. And grant you that ability to see and grant you that ability to understand and accept that you need Christ's forgiveness. It's that moment when a person makes a commitment to follow him. And because of his death on the cross, he provides that forgiveness and then brings about an exclusive, personal and permanent relationship with him. One that you have been set apart. And Paul notes here that that sanctification happens with the removal of of a person's sin is seen in the phrase having cleansed her the believer is set apart as holy not because of an act that they perform not because of something they do to themselves not because they take their own sins away or forgive themselves no one can pay god back right you can't pay back god all right is it on We're talking about the gospel, isn't it? Our enemy's alive and well. I'm not joking. He knows that when people hear this message that God has sent His only Son to die on a cross so that you would not have to suffer the punishment of hell for eternity because of your rejection of a holy and good and kind God. He doesn't want you to hear that. He doesn't want believers to be reminded of that. He wants us to keep trying to work on our own and earn salvation on our own and earn His favor on our own. He wants us to think that we can save ourselves if we're good enough. But we know that's not true. Otherwise, why did Jesus come at all? Why did He die on a cross at all? If we can save ourselves, we don't need Him. But Jesus did come. And He did die because if He didn't, 
we would all perish. And so Paul describes here that, that he sanctify us by having cleansed us with the water of the word. And that's a description here of the gospel, of the good news. Romans 10.8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's it. That's the the word, the truth, the, the gospel that cleanses from sin. If a person truly embraces that, places their faith in it, submits and bows the knee to Jesus Christ, commits their life to him, that message of truth, God's Spirit uses to transform the heart. Christ's death was sufficient to provide forgiveness to sinners like you and me. Amen? That's why He came. He didn't come to to show off or, hey, I'm here, check it out. He came to pursue the lost, which all of us are, the Bible says. All of us have sinned against Him. All of us deserve to be rejected by Him because we have first rejected Him. But he came anyway. He came anyway, uninvited, because he loves us. And so Paul says here that Christ gave himself for the church to set her apart, having cleansed her by the proclaimed word of Christ's gospel that washed her clean. And verse 27 says he did this so that he may present to himself a glorious church, one in which there is no blemish, no sin, no stain, no wrinkle, no spot, no imperfection at all, but that she would be perfect without sin church isn't there yet but one day jesus will bring that about completely that's been god's plan from the beginning if you remember back in ephesians 1 3 and actually in verse 4 he says just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world why so that we would be holy and blameless same passage oh thank you This is the same passage that, um, same thing that Paul says here at the end of Ephesians, verse 27. This is Daniel Pastrupa, by the way. (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. (laughs) See, I told you we were prepared this hour. So Paul says here, he just reiterates what, what he began with in Ephesians, that God has brought salvation because he wants a holy people. And why does he want a holy people without sin? Because then we'd be able to have a relationship with him because he's a perfect and holy God. He can't have sin in his presence, any rebellion, any wickedness. And so he makes a way to remove it so that we could be with him and fulfill the desire for which God created us, which is to have a relationship with him and to worship him as he's designed us to do. And this, this whole picture that, that Paul talks about here of, the, of a bride uh, being washed and cleansed and being presented to her husband, this is uh, something that would be uh, near and dear to those in Paul's day. It would resonate with them because it was a picture of what was practiced in the marriage ceremonies in the ancient Near East where there would be a betrothal period of time where a bridegroom would present a, uh, his, gift, uh, his bride with a gift And there would be a formal declaration at that point where he would say, you are set apart for me. But they wouldn't yet come together and consummate their marriage, though they they would be considered husband and wife at that point. They were betrothed, and that betrothal would last about a year or so, sometimes enough time to let the husband be able to collect enough for a dowry. But they would have this time period of waiting where they were considered husband and wife, but they had not yet uh, come to live together. And then at that point in time, there'd be a wedding feast. When the wedding would come, that would introduce and, and bring about the celebration of marriage. 
And so the wife, in preparation for that, would, would go through a special ceremony of bathing and adorning herself. And then she would be presented to her husband, to the groom who would take her to the wedding feast, and they would celebrate their marriage, after which they would be man and wife, husband and wife, in every sense of the word. And in the same way, the church is betrothed to Christ. And we're waiting. We're waiting to be presented to Him. Perfect, spotless, blameless, adorned, made beautiful by Him. Jesus didn't die because we were beautiful. He died for us to make us beautiful. And what's the point of all this? Why does Paul go into this description? Aren't we supposed to be focusing on husbands loving their wives here? What's the point of all the things that he's saying here? Is this another of Paul's rabbit trails? Is he, how's this connected to my role and, and responsibility in marriage? Well, what he's doing here, these verses are showing that the husband's sacrificial love has an aim. There's a goal, there's a purpose, there's a direction that it's supposed to head. Husbands don't serve for the sake of serving. They don't love. They're not called to love without purpose. Christ sacrificed himself in love for a reason. And what was that reason? It says here, so that we'd be cleansed from sin, so that we'd be made holy, so that we could have a relationship with him, a perfect and holy God. And that same purpose is what is to drive our roles as husbands. Not that we forgive our wives or that we can sacrifice for them to pay for their sins, but, but in the sense of our concern, in the sense of our focus. I mean, just what is a husband's primary concern supposed to be? That he protects his wife, that he meets her emotional needs, that she feels secure, that she's provided for financially, that, that he serves in the home, that he leads the family. These are all important. They're all necessary. God desires and demands that we do all those things, but they are not the primary focus, guys. The chief aim that you should have in your relationship with your wife and your love for her is her relationship with Christ. That is, is is she growing in holiness and purity? Is your main priority for your bride her sanctification, her walk with Jesus? How's your prayer life? Our culture has the impression that women are the prayer warriors, but guys, this should be us. How's your time in the Word? How deep is it? Are you feeding yourself? Are you so absorbed in God's Word that you're able to lead your wife and your family in Scripture? How much time do you spend with your wife talking to her about her walk with the Lord? Do you free up your wife to spend time with God? Maybe some days she's not able to because things are so busy. Do you offer maybe to, to come home as you do the dishes or watch the kids or clean around in the house or even the bathrooms if necessary? But are you making yourself available to help her in her walk in that way? Do you expose your wife or yourself to impure things? Are you protecting her purity? And guys, you should know also your wife well enough that you know where it is that she struggles and what tempts her. Are you protecting her from those circumstances as well? How conscious of you are you of setting the example in your home? Men, is your love for your wife a love that seeks her sanctification? Is your love for your wife a love that shepherds her sacrificially? And thirdly, is your love for your wife a love that sustains her sweetly? Look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. 
He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, verse 28 here contains a phrase that's actually connected back to verse 25. If you look back at verse 25, that phrase, just as Christ also loved the church, here in verse 28, he's completing the thought. So ought also wives, so ought also husbands to love their own wives. That parallels what he said in verse 24 with the same structure. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands. Those two phrases really are a a summation of exactly the point that he's making in this text on marriage. Just two things he's trying to communicate to us. How women are to be in regards to their relationship with their husband and how men are to be in regards to relationship with their wives. And then he summarizes it one more time in verse 33. Let each individual among you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. That's the point... Paul has been driving at. And notice here as he's talking to husbands in verse 28, he introduces this idea of loving your wife as your own body, as himself, as his own flesh. Paul is repeating over and over a point here that he's trying to emphasize that it's not calling us to love ourselves. He's assuming we already do. And he's calling us to love our wives like we already love ourselves. And that statement should bring us to a familiar commandment, shouldn't it? It's the second greatest commandment in all the Bible. I know you can hear me because the mic. Hello, it's on, right? What's the second greatest commandment in Scripture? To love your neighbor as yourself. And who is our closest neighbor but our wives and our husbands? And the words here, nourish and cherish, they indicate that that love for our wives is, is more than just in the spiritual realm, but also in the physical Nourish has the idea of to provide for, to provide food for, to nurture, as, a, as it's used in Ephesians 6.4 for children. Cherish comes from a word that literally means to, to heed or to warm. And it conveys this idea of providing care, providing comfort, and protection. So Paul's saying here with these two phrases that we are called to protect for and provide for our wives. If uh, you hear a noise in the night in the house... You go check it out, guys. You don't say, hey, honey, I went last time. It's your turn. If you see danger coming, you put yourself between it and her. A lot of times my wife and I are on walks and we see dogs or other things. And I think I annoy her half the time because I kind of pushing her out of the way. It's just it should be a natural response, a natural reaction that I want to protect my bride from any danger. Jesus went to the mat for his bride, didn't he? To deliver us from danger. And we would do that with our own bodies. And that's one of the points Paul's making here. You protect yourself, right? If you see harm coming, you try to get out of the way, don't you? It's a natural reaction. Paul says here that we're also to provide for our wives. That means you're to be the principal. You're principally, excuse me, responsible for caring for her needs. You're to be the one worrying about paying the bills. You're the one primarily to be the one laboring to provide financially. This doesn't mean that your wife cannot earn money. So we see in Proverbs 31, the, uh, the woman there, the ideal woman, is an amazing uh, way in that she works and earns money. In fact, the women that were with Jesus, it says in Luke 8, 1, that they helped support him through their means. But you men bear the primary responsibility to provide. Have you made provision for your wife in case you're unable to work? Have you considered disability 
insurance. Have you looked into that? Have you looked into life insurance? These are important ways you need to consider and think about to provide for your wife in case something comes along and you're not able to work. You never know what's going to happen. So Think about those things, men. There's another important point that we can't miss here. As Paul uses in these words, nourish and cherish, there's a connotation that they give that it's our protection and our provision is more than a husbandly duty. It's more than something we're commanded to do. Just as we don't feel obligated to care for our own bodies, we shouldn't feel obligated to care for our wives. As Paul keeps saying over and over, as our own bodies, as ourselves, we're to love them. One commentator said this, this love is not to be seen as a duty, but it's something that is consistent with his nature. He does not think about loving himself because it is natural. So also should the husband's love of his wife be something that is as natural as loving himself. See, the idea here is we we don't give ourselves enough barely to survive, do we? We show great passion and motivation and, and care for our own bodies. That's a natural instinct to protect and provide. And these words, nourish and cherish, they communicate something here. More than just the idea of of protecting and providing for your wife, but not out of duty, but out of care. There's a, a tone of compassion. There's a tone of affection, of tenderness. That word nourish is used in Ephesians 6, 4. The only other time it's used, I think, where Paul uses it in regards to, to raising your children, that there needs to be a care and a concern as you do that. That word cherish is also used the only other time it's used is in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, where Paul says there, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares, as that word cherishes, her own children. See, these are intimate terms, guys. We need to understand that we are to love our wives not out of compulsion, but out of affection. Provide for your bride and protect her because you care about her, not just because you have to. We're so prone to see loving our wives as that. As we have these responsibilities and duties. I have to provide for food, make sure there's a roof over our heads, clothing, household appliances, all these things. Make sure she's cared for and taken care of, and that's good. But the point Paul is making here is that you're to, to love her with a tender affection. You're to express these things as, uh, in care and concern. And, and again, this isn't a suggestion, guys. Paul's not kind of making, hey, if you, know, if you want to think about it, this might be something to consider. He's not making this optional for us. You're to love your own wife as your own body, which you nurture and care for. You are to show her tenderness and love. You're one flesh with her, right? She's a part of you. Genesis 26, 8 describes Isaac as tenderly caressing his wife, Rebecca. Song of Solomon describes a husband who is both verbally and physically affectionate toward his bride. God has designed your wife, men, as a delicate flower to be watered often, not as a plastic plant to be dusted off now and then. I think sometimes we have that perspective. Thomas Watson said this, The husband should show his love to his wife by covering infirmities, by sweet endearing expressions, by love tokens, by encouraging what he sees amiable and virtuous in her, by mutual prayer, by associating with her. The pilot who leaves his ship and abandons it entirely to the merciless ways declares that he does not value it or reckon there is any treasure in it. Man, if you're not working at cherishing your wife, at showing her tender affection, at at giving her care and concern, you're being just as disobedient 
is a wife who's being unsubmissive or disrespectful. Ephesians 5.29 is just as binding on you men as Ephesians 5.22 is for our wives. And notice at the end of verse 29, Paul says there, just as Christ also does the church. Christ treats his bride with tenderness and care. He provides and protects for her with graciousness and affection. And that's to motivate us to do the same. And I know for some of us, for many of us, this is hard to do. How do I do that? Isn't that just for those guys who are more wired that way? That, you know, they're kind of built to, to be you know, romantic and affectionate and caring and doting on their wives. That's just not me. I'm a guy. I get that. Just ask my wife. She knows. Yeah, that's. Tim has a problem with that. If that is a struggle for you, if you don't know how, ask her. Just ask her. Say, what are some ways I can show you affection? What are some ways that I can communicate to you that I care? Because most guys do care, but it's hard for us to show that in a way that our wives see that. So just ask. And let another brother know, too. We should all be accountable in this, guys. That Let another brother know that, hey, I want to be more this way towards my bride. Can you be asking me about that? And sometimes I give you permission to ask my wife how I'm doing. Right? We're one body, aren't we? This is how we can help each other. It's exactly how we can help each other. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, not in action only, but also in affection. Love her with a love that sustains her sweetly. Love her with a love that shepherds her sacrificially, that seeks her sanctification. And you're to love her this way, whether she's a believer or not. You are to love her in this way, whether she is submitting to you or not, whether she is respecting you or not. There's no conditions here. Paul doesn't lay out conditions. If, ladies, you have a godly leader in your home, submit to him. If, men, your wife is submissive and respectful to you, then lead her. You see any ifs in here? Please show me. If you do, there aren't. These are unconditional. They're not based on your spouse's worthiness. Men, you love her because of Christ's example of love to you. He loves us because of his character and because of our need. And you may have a wife that spurns you, that disrespects you, that's hard to live with, that's difficult to love. But weren't we that way with Jesus? Aren't we still that way at times with him? And yet his love is unconditional, isn't it? John Piper said, Christ did not look for an attractive woman or an intelligent woman or even a faithful woman. Speaking, of course, of the church. He chose an unlikely woman. And then he set out to make her attractive and wise and faithful at the cost of his own life. That's our example, men. Well, guys, are you sufficiently overwhelmed? You feel inadequate? Feel like a failure? I do. You know, I I have dreaded this sermon more than any other. As I look to Ephesians... This passage in Ephesians 5 is one I, I did not want to preach on. And I'm being honest with you because I've got my family. My mother and my wife are sitting out there listening to me. And they see me in my house. My children, they know how far short I fall. I'm the biggest hypocrite in this room. And as I was preparing this week, I kept saying, ouch, and oh, yeah, blowing that one too. There's another very discouraging. And then I remembered something. 
I remembered where Paul started this letter. I remember he didn't start it by, hey, guys, you're idiots, you're jerks. I'm going to fix you. Here's what you need to do. Ladies, you got some issues, too. He didn't start his letter there. He didn't begin with us at all, did he? He began with God. He began with what God has done in us. He began with God's grace in saving unworthy sinners. He began with the fact that we were spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves, and that God intervened. He began with God's kindness and mercy and forgiveness. He began with describing how we were adopted as his children, that he sent his son to die for us. He began with the fact that the Spirit is the one who secures our salvation, the one who brings comfort, the one who brings ability to live out and to do These things he's called us to. He didn't begin with what we're to do. He began with who we are. He didn't start with our need to obey, but with our means to obey. He didn't commence with what we possess to live out the Christian life, but what God possesses to enable us to live out that life. God is not looking for the perfect man, for he will find none God is looking only to perfect man through his exalted son. Man, we have an opportunity to do what Alvin encouraged us to do last week. All of us, when he said to lift up Jesus, such a great message. So encouraged by that. That we're to make much of him, to exalt the son of God. And you know what, guys? You have a unique opportunity, unlike any other, to do that. And living out to be the husband that God has called you to be. Do you notice how many times we're compared to Christ here, that we're to emulate Him, we're to mirror Him, we're to mimic Him? And as you love your wives in the way and the manner in which we see here, you lift up Jesus. You show the world what He looks like. You show the world that God is a shepherd. You show the world that God has a tender care and affection. You show the world that He has a heart for them. You show the world that God is a God who desires to protect and provide for and to care for. You show the world that the heart of God is to serve. And you guys have the, the greatest opportunity to do that. To be Jesus. You want to exalt Christ? You you want to declare the gospel through your life to the world? Then love your wife, no matter how difficult it is. Be a servant in your home. Care for your bride. Shepherd your family. Lead in love. Because in the end, that's what it's all about. You are to be Jesus in your home. So am I. We're to be Jesus at our job, to be Jesus in our neighborhood, in our church. And it all starts with your role as husband. He says here, the husband is the head just as Christ also is the head. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Nurse and cherish your wives just as Christ also does the church. And he he does that not only to show that our example is Jesus, but also to show that our objective is drawing attention to Jesus. We're not just to be mirrors that reflect him. We're also to be magnifying glasses that help the world to see a bigger and clearer picture of him. So to love my wife isn't something that I should dread but be excited about. It's not something I should avoid, but but to rush after. It's not something that I need to rely on myself to do it, but I can rely on God who's going to empower me to do what he's called me to do. Guys, there's great hope. Again, the message in Ephesians isn't you got to rely on yourself to do this, because you can't. But that God has done such a work, and as you humbly submit yourself to him and spend time with him, 
He will enable you by His Spirit to be what He's calling you to be. And ladies, you play a key role in this, either for good or for bad. If you want to ensure that your husbands do not grow as servant leaders in your home, then make sure that you criticize them. Make sure that you nag them on what they're not doing. Don't submit to them. Point out his faults. Belittle him, especially in front of his kids. Focus on where he's falling short. Don't encourage him. Don't be intimate with him. Don't walk by the Spirit. And above all things, do not pray for him. Don't do that. But I know you better than that. I know that's not what you want. I know you want a husband that looks like this. And you can greatly help him by asking him, what are some ways, honey, that I, things that I do maybe that hinder you being a leader in our home? And what are some ways that I can help? And guys, respond gently to those questions. But ask them. Ask them, what are ways I can help you to be a better leader in our home? Use it as a time to seek information, not as a time to point out faults. Confess if you haven't been doing that. Express your desire to him that you want to be a helpmate, that you want to respect him and you want to come alongside him so that God can use your family to be a testimony. And then pray for him and pray a lot. Pray a lot. On May 22nd, 2011, a massive tornado blew through Joplin, Missouri with winds sometime approaching 250 miles an hour. It's a massive tornado. Many of you know about it, saw pictures Over three-quarters of Joplin was damaged. Over a quarter of it was completely destroyed. I have family that lives there. We had uh, some uh, firsthand descriptions of some of the destruction there that took place. But more than just property was lost. 158 people died in that tornado. One such tragedy took place near the corner of 20th Street and Mississippi Avenue. There you can see pictures of a bathtub in the midst of a bunch of rubble piled around it. It was that same bathtub that Don Lansaw Jr. pushed his wife Bethany into. And then he put some pillows on top of her. And then he laid on top of her. Tornado come upon them so fast, they didn't have a basement to run to. didn't know what to do, so Don did the first thing that came to his mind and put his wife in that tub and used that tub and his body to shield her from the storm. He held tightly to the tub rails as the tornado fiercely raged over the top of them. And once the deafening noise had passed and the dust had somewhat settled, Bethany rose up and looked around at her home that was completely gone. And she saw her husband lying on the ground. And in the course of protecting her, he had suffered a deep wound in his side. She ran to get help, but by the time she came back, her husband was dead. She told reporters later, if her husband had not shielded her, they both would have died. Don gave up his life to protect hers. And this is indeed how Christ loved his bride. This is how he loved you. And this is a picture, men, that represents and shows us how we should love our wives. I want to give you a minute to to pray silently to yourself. Ask the Lord to help show you ways. I, I don't want you to walk out of here guilty. I want you to walk out of here motivated 
through Christ's example and asking Him for help. So I'm going to give you a minute to do that. Give you a minute, everyone, to be praying for our husbands here in this body and for God to maybe show you a way that you can help them perform a role that's very difficult and can be very guilt-ridden. And typically when we feel guilty, we just want to give up. So please take this time to pray for God to do a work among us here in Calvary. Lord Jesus, thank you for the example that you have shown us what it means to shepherd. Thank you for giving yourself up for us so that we could know you, have a relationship with you. Thank you for your word that encourages us. Thank you, Father, for determining to save us and to send your Son for us and for providing your Holy Spirit, to help us live these things out. And I pray, God, you would do a work among the men, particularly here at Calvary, and help us to be the husbands that you have designed us to be, you want us to be. Lord, we want that. But our sin and our circumstances, we struggle. Lord, may you do a work here in our church so that we may lift up the name of Jesus through our lives, and that he may be exalted and pleased. God, I do pray you would encourage them in here, that you would help them, Lord, not to see where they're failing, but but the opportunities they have, Lord, to represent you in their homes. I pray you would help their wives to be an encouragement to them and to help them. And I pray for those who are single here, God, that they would, uh, Lord, look for ways as well to be encouraging the families in this body, and that they would be encouraged. Pray, Lord, for our single women, that they would be looking for a man who loves in this way, and that our single men would be diligent to seek to be like the man you described here in Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, that you are good, and that you care for us, that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.